Now what's the word? Democracy. 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 You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. So welcome everyone to Election Connection with me, Ruth Newman, your host on Louisville's premier all-volunteer grassroots community radio station where we ply these public airwaves for the sole purpose of serving and engaging the public. Today we have two guests who are going to provide us with a roadmap for getting special interest money out of political campaigns. And wouldn't that be incredible? <laughs> they come from the state of Maine where Clean elections have been in full force now since 1996, if I'm correct. Um, so I have with me John Brodigam. He is an attorney and consultant with over 25 years of experience in campaign finance and election law, public policy, advocacy, and legal representation. He's a former Maine state representative and house chairman of the Insurance and Financial Services Committee, before that, he served as Assistant Attorney General, and as legal counsel, he successfully defended the constitutionality of the 1996 reforms to the Maine campaign finance laws, including the Maine Clean Election Act. And we also have Ann Luther, who currently serves as Treasurer of the League of Women Voters of Maine. She chairs their advocacy committee. She served as president of the league from 2003 to 2007 and as co-president from 2007 to 2009. She's worked for the league's priority issues in clean elections and campaign finance reform, voting rights, ethics in government, ranked choice voting, maybe we'll get to ranked choice voting, and repeal of term limits. She remains on the board of the Maine Citizens for Clean Elections, and most interestingly, she hosts the League's monthly radio show, The Democracy Forum, on WERU-FM Community Radio. So welcome to both of you. I'm so glad to have you. And Thanks, Ruth. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the problem because I feel like so many times, so much time is spent on the problem, you never get to the solution. But I do want to touch on what is wrong with our system the way it stands now. Why is it in such bad shape and why do people not trust our politicians? Well, I, I guess I would start out by saying thank you, Ruth, and it's great to be on your, on your program. And I think part of the problem is that in the last several decades, we've seen um, so much money pour into campaigns and the money has become the driving force in the campaigns and has become an obstacle to direct connection between the people and the people who represent them. And um, it, it's had a number of other 
effects on our politics, including making it very difficult for a lot of people to run for office if they don't have a lot of money or they don't have friends who have a lot of money or if they don't care to do what's necessary to raise a lot of money, um, then they can't run a competitive campaign. And all of this together, I think, has contributed to a sense of cynicism and a sense of alienation of people um, that our democracy doesn't work the way it was envisioned to work and that we need to get back to the principle of one person, one vote and citizen democracy. And I think that's kind of part of the, that's a way to summarize the answer from our perspective here. Yeah. In Would you like to add anything, Anne, or does that pretty well cover it? No, I mean, I think that's right. I think money in politics is certainly a big part of the problem. And it's astonishingly more and more every year. And, you know, the higher the stakes are, the more money comes, uh, the more money that comes, the higher the stakes are. And so, you know, here we are, you know, Maine was not the only state. Many, many, many states broke records in various races uh -huh. this year. And, you know, we've had a series of Supreme Court decisions, you know, looking at money as speech. And because we have such a strong free speech tradition in the United States, you know, regulating the money has become very, very difficult. And, you know, exacerbated by that now, we have a network of entities that are set up to protect the identity of the donors. So we don't even really have transparency anymore. So yeah, I mean, it's easy to be cynical about that. Mm -hmm. So um, I want you to talk about clean elections. And is that a type of public campaign financing? And how does that fit into the whole realm of public financing of campaigns? You know, our program, which passed by ballot initiative in, in 1996 and went in, into effect in 2000, has had the, the brand name Clean Elections. That was the name of the program that stuck to the collection of the signatures that put this on the ballot and the name of the program that's lived ever since. And it's it was the first in the nation full public financing system for state elections in the country. It was the first one. Oh, wow. And so... Yeah, pretty impressive, right, John? And a couple of yeah. states followed after us, but go ahead. Yeah, it really was. It came at a time when um, there was a sense that, well, going back to the Watergate era, that there was there was corruption in politics and there was money that was uh, fueling some of that corruption. And New York City had a public financing uh, program in place prior to the clean election program in Maine, but there really was just about nowhere else that had enacted something like this. And I think there was some skepticism that the people would support it, but in Maine, they, they supported it strongly and have supported it ever since. And um, as Anne noted, other places have followed the model. So there's still a lot of work to be undone, but we have a really strong model here that has endured. Yeah, and I'd like to get into that model, but, and it does not take any kind of a constitutional amendment either, right? Not in Maine, no. no. Yeah, this was created in order to comply with everything in the Constitution as the courts had interpreted it. So, no, we believe this honors First Amendment values. We think it promotes democratic participation. So you don't really need a constitutional amendment to do this. And 
other states have done, states and cities have done the same thing, and they've used either the clean elections model or various other models, like I've heard of democracy vouchers in uh, Seattle. It's Seattle. I mean, after our law passed, Arizona came right behind us, and they passed Uh a very, very similar law, almost identical by ballot question, and then Connecticut also has a statewide program very, very similar to ours. In the meantime, cities and municipalities like Seattle have tried Uh other things, and the voucher model that Seattle uses is also very attractive. Um, You know, it's a little different from ours, but it's also a public funding system for municipal office and some other, you know, John mentioned New York City, but there are other municipalities that have public funding systems as well. And in the state of Maine, what levels of government does it uh, work with? I mean, do all the levels of government have that opportunity now for a candidate to run on clean elections? The state legislature has clean elections and the state governor's races have clean elections as an optional system. And in fact, just last month, the city of Portland, our largest city, uh, voted to create a clean election system for municipal races for city council, mayor, school board. Um, so it's it's common in the state, but there are still some places where it's not used. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, county races are not yet covered. We have those aspirations, but they're mm-hmm. unfulfilled. So tell me what it is that a candidate has to do in order to become a clean elections candidate. In, in Maine, they have to collect a certain number of what we call qualifying contributions. This is a $5 contribution from voters in their district. Just imagine how many regular folks can now feel empowered and engaged in the political process because the maximum level of contributions is only $5. And now how is that for leveling the playing field? And the levels are set depending on the race. It's less for a House race, more for a Senate race, more for the governor. They have to collect a set amount of those $5 qualifying contributions. That money goes into the main clean election fund. And once they reach the qualifying threshold, they get a lump sum grant to run their campaign. We can talk a little bit about supplemental funding and you know how, how they do that. If they're in a very competitive race, after they get their initial lump sum grant, they can continue to get QCs. QC, which stands for Qualifying Contributions that come from people in their district. And raise additional money to keep them competitive. If they're facing a privately financed opponent or a lot of outside spending, you know, they can have a little upside potential there by continuing to raise QCs. But basically, once they qualify, they get this lump sum. And in many races, that's enough to run a competitive campaign. Why why don't you add to that, John? Well, um, the principle of the program is that candidates are required to abide by certain restrictions that you couldn't force candidates to do, but you can ask them to do it as part of a voluntary system. So it does operate as a spending limit as well. And, you know, the excess amount of money being spent in politics is certainly a a big issue that a lot of people are concerned about. So when candidates get into this program, they do get the money, the funding that Ann described, 
but that's all they get. They cannot raise uh, money from any private sources. And so they have to be very careful and show that they're thrifty with the money that they do get. And um, they can't um, exceed the total amount provided under the system, even if they do run out of money. So it, it's, a, um, it's a package deal. And um, they have to abide by other restrictions as well in terms of how they use the money and so forth. But altogether, it seems to work very well. Not everybody uses it. Other, other people still run using private, private funds, um, and they're allowed to do that. That's their, that's their right. But I'd say a majority over the years, uh, overall, a majority of legislative candidates have used the system. I'm just wondering, you mentioned, I believe, Anne, that they can raise a little bit more money if their opponent who is getting private funding has so much more money than they do to um, spend. Wasn't there a Supreme Court ruling that said that you couldn't do that? Yeah, it was in um, 2011. And I told you before that Arizona passed a law pretty much just like ours. Mm -hmm. And there was a challenge to Arizona's law for what were called triggered matching funds. So if you were a candidate in a competitive race and you were being vastly outspent by your opponent, or if independent expenditures in your race were targeted against you, you would get these triggered matching funds, which were automatically triggered by the spending of the other entity. And those triggered matching funds were what were struck down in Arizona. And our law had the exact same thing. And so our law fell at the same time. Without those triggered matching funds, candidates were essentially sitting ducks. If they were in a competitive race and they were a clean elections candidate, they got the initial distribution. But And that was enough to be competitive if it was just candidate to candidate. But if there was a rich privately financed candidate or if there was a lot of private money raised or if there was outside spending, those candidates couldn't stay competitive anymore. So we ran another ballot initiative to fix our law with what we call supplemental funding. So it's not triggered anymore, which would be unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. But the candidates themselves can make the determination if they're in a competitive race that they don't have enough from their initial distribution to stay competitive. They can continue to raise $5 qualifying contributions and get supplemental funding up mm -hmm. to a cap. Um, I'm curious also, are there any other things that are allowed or that are, I'm thinking about like, for example, putting candidates on the television or putting them on the radio or different media, getting them to come together, have a debate, have a forum, so that whether or not they have a lot of money, they can still have that, you know, be in front of the public, you know, and, and especially with their opponent so that you get to compare and contrast. Is there any of that in clean elections? We don't require anything like that in clean elections, um, although it's interesting to say that the city of Portland, as I noted, just passed a clean election program last month. And they do have a provision that requires candidates to participate in at least one public forum if they're receiving public money. Uh -huh. And so we'll see how that works. It's going to be implemented in 2023. And that's an innovative thing that addresses the uh, issue that you've raised. But it's not done at the statewide level. 
Um, the, the campaigns remain pretty much the same as, as they traditionally were conducted before. You know, over time, this, like any reform, like the more important the reform, the more stubborn the opposition. So like any important reform, this one has had its opponents. And over the years, the opponents have put in more and more sort of stipulations about what clean elections candidates can and cannot do. So mm -hmm. some of the things that a privately financed candidate would be allowed to do, a clean elections candidate is not allowed to do. Um, hiring a family member on your campaign, for example, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. By and large, at the state level anyway, legislators have so far allowed clean elections candidates to be in charge of their own campaign strategy and to make the decisions about how to run a winning campaign. So we sort of stayed away at that level from prescribing, you know, what you have to do in order to win. But but there have been measures proposed before, like John said, about um, candidates and debates, and you know, that may circle back around depending on what success Portland has. It'll be interesting to see. I'm also curious to know how the money is monitored and regulated, and are there good watchdogs over this process? Well, everybody involved here knew that it would be important to be very accountable and very transparent with this money. It is public money in a sense, and um, it, it's important to make sure that those people who are receiving it are spending it on their campaigns and are reporting appropriately, you know, what they're spending it on, how much they're spending it on. And at the end of the campaign, if there's any money left over, they need to return that back to the fund. We have a really good ethics commission here that uh, monitors this kind of thing. And part of the clean election program that was enacted in 1996 also uh, strengthened our ethics commission and gave them the resources to do a good job with that. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Um, there needs to be transparency and accountability and some extra provisions built in uh, to ensure that the money is used responsibly and um, advances the, the purpose for which it's, it was created in the first place. And also, I'm curious to know, how does the public know that this person is a clean elections candidate, and how does the public know what that means? Because I was told, and I didn't know this, I, I just assumed that if you were a clean elections candidate, it could be put on the ballot so that people could see it when they went to vote. But that's not the case. So how do people know that this person is a clean elections candidate and all that that entails? The candidates are pretty forthcoming themselves. I mean, you know, first of all, if they're trying to collect all these qualifying contributions, they have to be out there asking their people for the $5, right? So, you know, they're at their party meetings, they're at their church suppers, they're at public events, they're trying to collect those qualifying contributions all the time. Um, they're absolutely allowed to put it in their campaign materials. They write letters to the editor and op-ed saying, I'm, you know, so-and-so, I'm running for office and I'm clean elections candidates. So I, I think constituents who are interested in these things have a very ample opportunity to find out who's a clean elections candidate and who's not. And I was also pleased to learn that any money that is not spent gets returned to the public coffers. So that's really another good aspect of clean elections. Right. Now, Maine has had clean elections since 1996, right? 
it went into effect in 2000. That was the oh, first yeah. year candidate could really run with it, but yeah. So you have a pretty good track record now. I'm wondering if you could give me any, um, you know, any information on, on what the results have been. Like, for example, do both Republicans and Democrats and even independents run on clean election formats? Yeah, we track this information all the time, and uh, we have seen the levels go, the levels of participation go up and down somewhat. Um, there are probably more Republicans who don't use clean elections because of, for whatever reason, they 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 don't choose to use it. Um, but certainly many do, and particularly in the Senate, the state Senate, um, it's very common for members of both parties to use clean elections, and it's very widely accepted. And it's it's not really the subject of any kind of um, campaign opposition. For the for the most part, people realize that it's a valuable thing, and they don't. Um, campaign against people because they're using clean elections. I would say one of the things that's happened, and it's really hard to say what the cause and effect is, but we have more women uh, running and there's anecdotal information that there's more people who are, you know, sort of able to run because they um, have this public source. There are a lot of people in our legislature who are retired and it doesn't pay a lot. Um, and so it's it's sometimes difficult to balance financially and difficult to self-fund your campaign. And so there's some anecdotal evidence that there are more people who can step forward and run because they have this option available to them. Mm -hmm. I, I like to tell people that it's an, a system that creates opportunity for people to run who would not otherwise run. And our candidates tell us that all the time, you know, whether it's because they don't want to be beholden to special interests or because I mean, we had one candidate in a debate this year just say, you know, I could ask for money for that charity over there, but I just can't do it if it's for myself. So I chose the clean election program because I want to serve, I want to run and serve, but I just can't ask people for money that will benefit me. So I think it in, you know, one way or another has encouraged people to run who would not run otherwise. And I think in in some ways, again, anecdotal evidence, it's um, allowed our legislature to be more diverse across a number of dimensions. I would think so. Yeah, and rather than spending their time calling fat cats up on the phone, you know, calling all of these rich corporations and special interests, they're spending their time going into their districts and talking to their constituents. and and. That just makes so much more sense in terms of a democracy and one person, one vote. So, um. I have served in the legislature, Ruth, as you mentioned. I've served there mm -hmm. for four years, and mm -hmm. um, I do I do know that most of the people I served with are very honorable people. Um, but I do know that there were times when people would not vote a certain way because their contributors um, did not want them to. And um, they, there were some times when people actually would say that, that that was the case. You know, so I think that um, if there is some public cynicism around this, it's, it does have some foundation. And I would say in Maine, one of the benefits of clean elections has been that, you know, it's a constant reminder uh, to all of the public that um, our elections are about the people and that, you know, of course, it's fine to have lobbyists up in our state house, but it really comes down to the people's 
will should control you know the direction of our government and this is a good reminder of that yes yes i'm curious to know also whether it has any at all effect on negative ads negative political ads that are such a turnoff to so many people does clean elections have any kind of influence over that or have you noticed any difference i wish i could say yes <laughs> you know but i i think i think that the state of the supreme court's rulings and the way independent expenditures have you know sort of ramped up in the years since clean elections have come in i think where a lot of that negative campaigning comes from is not from the candidates themselves it's from independent expenditures and dark money and they do it because unfortunately they find it effective but no i i can't say i mean i think if we had only clean elections and not that outside money we probably would have that effect but in the environment we're in with so much dark money being spent in campaigns i, I can't say we've seen a diminution of negative campaigning no but the dark money is only going toward the non-clean elections candidates. Is that right? Oh, it goes to both. No, no unfortunately, the dark oh. money is getting spent independent of the candidates. And the clean election oh. program cannot control what people spend independently. They still have the right to you know, advocate for their own candidates or, or advocate against candidates. And that's where a lot of that negativity comes in, unfortunately, as Anne as mm -hmm. pointed out. That's an interesting situation then. <laughs> Part, partly because of the concerns about the quality of our political discourse, we have been exploring and implementing ranked choice voting in the state as well. We can talk about that later on. Yeah, I would love to. I was just gonna add that the candidates don't love the negative campaigning. The candidates disavow it. And um, you know, I've had candidates tell me that their voters came up and told them they were not going to vote for them because their party ran some negative ad. Candidates hate that. You know, I mean, the, the candidates themselves, I guess, could stop it if they really laid down the law and said, I'm not going to stay in this party if this party does that kind of behavior anymore. But, you know, these races are so competitive and there's so much at stake. And, you know, the, the amount of independent spending is so gigantic compared to the amount that the candidates themselves spend. I think that the clean election program allows candidates to run on their own message and get out the positive story that they want to tell, but it also very clearly prevents them from coordinating with anybody else who's spending outside. They can't do that. They can't tell them what to do. And you are listening to Election Connection with me, your host, Ruth Newman. We're coming to you on WFMP 106.5 FM, as well as being live streamed at www.forwardradio.org. We are local, listener-supported, and all-volunteer radio. Today's show is taking a look at the state of Maine, which managed to enact clean elections reform over 20 years ago. Now, to help us understand what this has meant for the people of Maine and their one-person, one-vote democracy, we have as special guests John Brodigam, who is an attorney and consultant with over 25 years of experience in campaign finance and election law, 
public policy, advocacy, and legal representation. He is a former Maine state representative and former assistant attorney general as well. And he holds a law degree from Stanford Law School and a BA in government from Wesleyan University. We also have with us Anne Luther, who currently serves as treasurer of the League of Women Voters of Maine. She's a past president. She's worked for their priority issues in clean elections and campaign finance reform, voting rights, ethics in government, ranked choice voting, and repeal of term limits. And what is so interesting to me and to you guys, I would imagine, is that she hosts the League's monthly radio show, the Democracy Forum, on WERU-FM Community Radio. Also, she was the 2013 recipient of the Baldwin Award from the ACLU of Maine for her work on voting rights and elections. So let's get back to the conversation. I would really like for you, both of you maybe, to tell my listeners why term limits doesn't work. (laughs) Because that is always the answer I get when I talk about the corruption of money in politics. And one one of my favorite subjects. Yeah. (laughs) So go to it. (laughs) Well, I'll start. I think John has feelings on this too, especially from his time in the legislature. But you know, being a legislator is not that easy. Legislators are dealing with complex matters of public policy that takes years to really understand. They sit on these committees and the material that comes before them is hard. I mean, you have to know a lot in order to find the right public policy solution to some of these matters. So our term limits are eight years. And you know, by the time you've done five or six years, you're just finally getting good at your job, you know, and then you're out, right? So, you know, every year we get a uh, turnover. We get the, and the turnover hasn't really changed that much. We get 33% turnover with term limits, 33% without. But the thing is we're getting rid of the good people um, and not just the people who are no good at their job. So, you know, term limits has really not increased the effectiveness of the legislature. It has not strengthened the legislative committee. It's pushed the expertise to the lobbyists and paid staff. So that has not worked out that great. So I left the legislature in 2008, um, but I had occasion to be back in the state capitol this week for a meeting. and. I saw the new legislators come in who had just been elected and sworn in, and I knew a few of them. But when I walked through the area where the lobbyists are, I knew almost all of them. And that's because they're the same people who were there in 2008 when I left. And the lobbyists are strengthened by term limits in some ways because the legislators have to depend on them, and the lobbyists really know Uh, all the history and they have all the resources um, to make their case very effectively. And um, something similar happens with the executive branch itself, that it empowers them. You know, they can just wait out the legislature because they know that they'll be adjourning and then most of them or many of them won't be back. Um, There was a 
uh, 40% turnover in our legislature this, this election cycle, um, and that's not uncommon. So it really has shifted power to areas that are less directly democratically controlled. Yeah, and what about the revolving door <laughs> when it comes to lobbyists? There's yeah, that we've, too. we've had that too. I mean, we've enacted some legislation over the years to clamp down on that. There's a cooling off period. Um, so you can't just go right from this to start lobbying. But, um, you know, we do have that. And, you know, in some ways, I hate to say this on the air, but I'm a little sympathetic because, you know, legislative service pays not that much, right? And so you go do your duty, you're a young person, you get to be expert on your legislative area. Now, what are you gonna do to make a living, right? Mm -hmm. um, you haven't really had a full-time job during your legislative service. Now you're out, what are you gonna do to make a living? Um, so I kind of get the attraction. You've gotten good at this public policy business. You've got expertise in your policy area. You can do some good and make a commitment to an issue that you've worked hard to master. I get the attraction, um, but we do have this cooling off period. You can't jump right from this and start doing that the next day. One other thing is, um, that I wanted to ask you on that, when I have mentioned clean elections to people, I get a response sometimes that it's just too complex and difficult. It's just too complex to do. Well, I, I'm not going to say it didn't take a little work to set up the Ethics Commission, and I'm not going to say that their staff isn't expert in their way, right? So mm -hmm. the administration of it does have its um, its complexities, but our people understand it. Our candidates understand it. Everybody knows how it works. Everybody knows about their $5 qualifying contributions. You can make them online. Um, you know, there's been a, a good amount of public education done from the inception of the program right on through now, but the candidates themselves do a lot of that promotion. Mm -hmm. You know, they're out there telling their people, I'm a clean election candidate, give me $5. So, I mean, Maine people understand what, what clean elections is. Yeah, they've been doing it for a while now. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have. And the other the other aspect of that is that you really don't, candidates who are in the clean election program, once they get into the program, they don't have to have fundraisers. You spend a lot of time as a candidate if you're if you're not using this program, you know, raising money, um, calling people and having fundraising events and going to things. And um, that is um, something that also, you know, is it detracts from the direct kind of communication with the voters. And to some people, it's somewhat distasteful. Uh, so, yeah, there's a little bit of a learning curve to get into the system, but it's it's well worth it now. For the purposes of inspiring, I hope, <laughs> my listeners, I'm wondering if you could kind of go into the story of how you got involved in this, what you had to go through. This was back when you wanted to get it in, into, you know, you wanted to get clean elections enacted into the government. I would like to know how you did that. You know, what set you off in the first place? What was it that inspired you to do this? And then what happened along the way? What steps did you have to take? What forces did you find yourself up against? Give me some flavor. 
Well, I will, I will say that this actually, even though I've been involved in this for 25 years, it actually was before my time that the pe people got together literally around kitchen tables. People got together around kitchen tables. Now, how grassroots is that? And said, what can we do that will address these problems and will still be permissible under the constitutional free speech issues that we've been talking about? And this issue of public funding came up and, you know, the people decided to try to make a, a program that fit our state of Maine and, and the kinds of candidates and the kinds of politics that we have here. And they decided to try to get it approved through the, the citizen initiative process of having the voters to vote on it. And they created quite a coalition of people who all said, this is definitely worth trying. And it, it was kind of experimental. And, uh, you know, it was a very grassroots um, campaign effort. Um, and there was a little bit of opposition from a few areas, but most, mostly there was just some kind of curiosity about how it might work. And then after it was after it was approved by the voters, there were some legal cases against it that we had to work through over a course of a couple of years. Um, and then we had to continue to educate the public and candidates about what the program was going to be like and how to use it. So personally, I got involved just I was a volunteer in the campaign and I um, I just thought it was a great idea, innovative and um, pro democracy. And uh, I, I got involved in 1996, putting up lawn signs. And, and um, then I, I started working for the effort after the, the vote was taken. This was before my time, too. But because I'm with the league, I'll just tell the story. Like, people love clean elections. And the league and other partners, John talked about the coalition, fielded. Um, you know, it's Maine, 1,100 volunteers. That's a lot for Maine. They covered almost every polling place in Maine, and they gathered all the signatures they needed on one day to put this thing on the ballot. Because people were very responsive to this. You know, people wanted it. And so they got all the signatures in one day, and then it went on the ballot. I think this bears repeating. They got all the signatures they needed to put clean elections on the ballot in just one day. But, you know, like I said before, the more important the reform, the more meaningful the reform, the more aggressive the pushback. And so the legal challenges came, and then the legislative challenges came, and then the funding challenges came. So it's not like, yeah, you did it, now you're done, you can go rest on your laurels. No, it's it's been you know one thing after another all these 20, 30 years. And so you, when you started this effort, or when it was started, it was done throughout the state. It wasn't just done first at the municipal level and then later on at the state level. And I was going to ask that about that because I thought being in a very red state, the state of Kentucky, I thought it would be easier for us to start at the municipal level in Louisville. However, <laughs> I was told by a couple of city council people that um, we have no authority over elections in the city of Louisville, that it's all done through the state. The state has all the authority, which means that we would have to start with the state. 
Do you find that there was a lot of pushback from Republicans on this issue? I'm just curious whether we have a fighting chance here in Kentucky. We had some Republican support for this measure. Um, we had businesses, we had um, you know, teachers and nurses and organized labor. Um, we had a pretty broad coalition and but ours was voted on by the public and this is a unique kind of reform that is is harder to get it approved through the elected officials themselves who would have to use it um it, it's it's easier it's it, and and in some ways uh, more you know more appropriate to have the voters you know kind of demand this uh, insist on this kind of reform and then the legislators will follow the voters lead on it I see. And that's what that's what happened in Portland too. You know, now that Portland's got municipal public funding, um they approved it also by ballot question. You hear that? Clean elections was enacted after people got together in coalitions, signed petitions, and got the measure put on the ballot. So it didn't have to go through the state legislature. In Maine you know, state law does cover municipal elections to a certain extent, but we also have this sort of home rule business. So towns and municipalities have a lot of latitude and self-governance in Maine. And so mm -hmm. Portland was able to pass this ballot question in November, and they will be getting um, public financing in the coming year. Very, very good. And I might add that some form of clean elections is already being practiced in the states of Maine, as we know, Arizona, Connecticut, Florida, Hawaii, Maryland, Michigan, New Mexico, Vermont, West Virginia, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Rhode Island. It is also being practiced in the cities of New York City, Seattle, Washington, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Berkeley, California, Santa Fe, New Mexico, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Boulder, and Denver, Colorado. So, come on, people. It's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. I don't know if this is something, was one of my questions, I don't know if you can answer it. Do you think that there is any possibility we could have clean elections nationally? I mean, we do have public financing, but it's it hasn't worked very well because it hasn't kept up. And apparently less than 15% of the public checks off on their IRS form to, to uh, fund public financing. Well, there certainly would be a lot of work to do to make that happen. Um, but, you know, each time you read the newspaper and there's another uh, article or concern about the fragility of our democracy, it's always worth um, reaching big and you know, trying to trying to achieve a, a big reform like this. Uh, so I wouldn't put it off the table, um, the idea of reinvigorating the presidential public funding uh, system nationally. Ultimately, you know, we need to talk about um, some of the court decisions that, in my opinion, um, did not recognize the value of allowing people in the states to um, set their own campaign finance rules, including reasonable restrictions on what can be spent and where you can raise your money from. 
I think that's really where we're going to need to uh, make some progress nationally. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can do that someday. Um, you know, there's not really a lot of hope right away, but um, as people continue to feel uh, reaching for solutions to some of the big problems, I think this has got to be on the table. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to um, KET, which is um, public TV here, and they were interviewing some people who had done surveys of young people and what turns young people off. And they, they said that just the negativity and, and the corruption in politics, and it's just a turnoff for young people. And so I would think that having an effort to enact clean elections would be something that could motivate young people to get involved again. I don't know, are young people... No, I mean are they more involved in Maine? I mean, they're not very involved here in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that in the last election, youth voter turnout was up from what it had been in the past. I don't know mm -hmm. if that was true in Kentucky, but I'm pretty sure it was true nationwide. And I think it was probably true in Maine, too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when the clean elections law passed, you know, we were ourselves quite a bit younger. Um, and so we were involved as quote unquote young people, um, you know, back in, the, back in the day. You know, I think these important reforms, you know, you have to be working on them and working on them and working on them. And then one day your moment is going to come. Right, right. Right. And if, if the moment comes and you haven't been working on them, you're going to miss your moment. But if you've been doing the work and preparing all of a sudden, the sea is going to part, your moment is going to come, and you have to be ready to drive your truck through right, that right. moment. If you get, I don't know, my metaphors are getting <laughs> I know, I was thinking you. of a surfer in the ocean waiting for the wave and <laughs> being prepared. Right. Yeah. The other, the other suggestion is, um, you know, we're, we're big um, devotees of clean elections here, but there's a lot of other um, things that you could think about, you could consider that might be a better fit for Louisville or for mm -hmm. Kentucky. Um, and, you know, we work on a variety of structural changes um, that can help enhance participation in democracy, um, transparency measures, um, disclosure, um, accountability, projects to make the elections, um, you know, very credible. And we have election auditing um and uh to enhance everybody's ability to participate like early uh, voting and and mm -hmm. simplified registration processes and so on so there's a lot of different things that can be done even if any one of them doesn't necessarily fit at the moment or maybe a package of a lot of these together um could mm -hmm. come together and you know make open some possibilities for your particular jurisdiction i know that here in kentucky both are local League of Women Voters and the Kentucky League of Women Voters is working very hard on nonpartisan redistricting commissions because we have so much gerrymandering in, in this state. Could That's you? a good one. More power to you. Oh, That's and, a very and, good one. Yes. And just in the last few minutes that we have, I'm wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about ranked choice voting. I'd like to hear some information on that. Does Maine have ranked? Yes. Oh, wow. Good. Sort of, yes. <laughs> that was another one that passed by ballot question. Um, 
you know, we tried and tried and tried to get it through legislatively and eventually it went to a signature campaign and it passed. It got challenged in court and alas, um, we lost the ability to run our gubernatorial and state legislature campaigns, but our federal campaigns and our primaries are all run by ranked choice voting. And, you know, just as I was talking, steady drip, drip, drip. We haven't given up on that. We're going to mm -hmm. keep trying to get it. But yeah, we do have ranked rank choice voting and we want to get quite a bit more of it if we can. Could you kind of try to explain what ranked choice voting is? So ranked choice voting uh, comes into play when you have uh, more than two candidates. Um, and instead of just voting for one candidate, you rank your candidates from your favorite, uh, your next candidate and your, your least favorite, you rank them one, two, three. Um, so you, it gives you a more complete uh, ability to express your opinion um, than just choosing one and, and that's all you get to do. And it also helps to um, get rid of what some people think of as the spoiler problem where, you know, a candidate uh, comes in and takes a little bit of uh, the vote um, and allows, um, you know, a less uh, popular candidate to squeak by because um, they were able to get, you know, 45% as opposed to 44%. And um, ranked choice voting, you know, requires every candidate to get about 50% before they're going to be elected. And it, it also leads to, you know, having the winning candidate take office with a sense of having a majority mandate, um, which we think is also a, a positive thing. Yeah, you know, and, and conversely, when we had our mayoral race this year, and uh, I really liked one of the independent candidates. I, I really wanted to vote for her, but I didn't want to take away from the, the two major candidates. So I ended up just voting the party line. And um, I wish we had, would have had ranked choice voting here. It would have freed me up to vote for the candidate of my choice, you know, rather than have that be a spoiler effect, as you said, John. So I know this gets into the weeds a little bit, but can you explain how a little bit about how that works? I mean, I know it's a little bit um, confusing, but like say your candidate was at the bottom in the election. So then how, then what do they do? They take your second choice candidate and- That's right. The candidate who gets the least number of votes in the first round, like if it, if somebody gets 50% or more in the first round, it's over, right? That's the end. But if nobody gets 50% or more in the first round, then the candidate with the least number of votes is defeated and their ballots are cast for their second choice. And in the case that you described where the independent candidate may be more similar to one of the candidates than to the other, it allows their support to consolidate around more similar candidates and defeat the candidate who is less well supported, if you see what I mean. So the yeah. lowest ranking candidate, the lowest vote getting candidate is eliminated. Their votes are transferred to their second choice. And that would be the end of it in a three candidate race. If there are more candidates, you know, that keeps going until um, one candidate gets more than 50%. And I also was told that it, it really 
reduces negative campaigning be because you don't want to say bad things about another candidate because that candidate may have gotten few votes and you would like to have been the second choice. But if you say bad things about that candidate, then their voters are not going to choose you for the second choice. Right. So, so in, the, in the situation that you talked about with three candidates and let's say two of them were sort of similar, right? Mm -hmm. It would stop those two candidates from attacking each other. It right. wouldn't stop them from attacking the third candidate that they mm -hmm. really didn't like, but they might join up and say, you know, if you're not going to pick me first, pick that one first. And the, the other one would say, if you're not going to pick me first, pick that one first and pick me second. So that the two of them mm -hmm. um, collaborate in their campaign to defeat the third one, if you see uh -huh. what I mean. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. Well, I'm so glad to have met you guys over video conferencing. And uh, I think that what Maine is doing is something that we all need to start thinking about, especially here in Kentucky. So I really appreciate your being on my show, Ann Luther and John Braudigam. Thank you for having us, Ruth, and good luck with your work in, in Louisville. Thank you, thank you. That was John Braudigam, former Maine State Representative and former Assistant Attorney General who has over 25 years of experience in campaign finance and election law, public policy, advocacy, and legal representation. And also special guest Ann Luther, former president of the Maine League of Women Voters, board member of the Maine Citizens for Clean Elections, and host of the League's monthly radio show, The Democracy Forum, on WERU-FM Community Radio. They were both talking about clean elections in Maine and its effect on significantly reducing the influence of money in politics. If you want to hear a podcast of this show, go to www.forwardradio.org. Click on Programs and select Election Connection to view a playlist. And don't forget to keep this listener-supported, non-commercial community radio station on the air by clicking on the Donate tab. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now what's the word? Democracy. There what's the word? Democracy. Now what's the word? Democracy. There what's the word? Democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection.